This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Tom Harley and Judith Brett. Tom Harley is a great-grandson of former Australian Prime Minister Alfred Deakin, and Judith Brett is Emeritus Professor of Politics at La Trobe University. In 2017, she wrote a biography about Alfred Deakin. Tom and Judith joined me to talk about the lives of Alfred Deakin and his wife, Patty Deakin, as well as some of their family members. They talk about the significance of a property called Ballara in Point Lonsdale on the Bellarine Peninsula. This house and its accompanying bush garden was designed by Patty Deakin and was a refuge as well as a place of intellectual and spiritual nourishment. As Tom and Judith share... It tells us a great deal about Alfred Deakin, the man and the politician, and is currently under threat of being sold and potentially developed. Tom is seeking to protect Ballara so that future generations can appreciate Australia's political heritage. It is my true pleasure to welcome onto this show two wondrous guests, one person of which I've spoken to a few times on this program, Professor Judith Brett who is an Emeritus Professor of Politics at La Trobe University and is also a political historian and biographer. And I've spoken with Judith many times in the past, in particular pertinent to this conversation. We spoke in 2017 about her very hefty and brilliant biography of Alfred Deakin, a very, very famous Australian Prime Minister. That biography was called The Enigmatic Mr Deakin, published by Text Publishing. We've also talked about a range of other issues relating to politics and democracy in Australia. I'm also joined by Tom Harley, who is one of quite a few great-grandsons of said Prime Minister, Alfred Deakin, from the early 1900s. And Tom has a great passion for history, being an amateur historian himself with a deep interest in heritage, as do I certainly have a deep passion and interest for heritage. And I know Judith does as well, because she's written letters in support of the issue we're about to discuss, which is a campaign to save Ballara, which is a gorgeous and very large property, 1.6 hectares, in the heart of Point Lonsdale, or Old Lonnie, as locals might describe it. It's a beautiful grounds of native gardens and grasslands, with orchids and all kinds of beautiful native species. And then situated within it, certainly what I've just had a, a chance to look at in person is Ballara, a gorgeous house, which I'm not even going to describe yet because I want to hear how Tom describes it. And then we'll get Judith's opinion on it because I think even the architecture of Ballara itself is quite a fascinating topic. But that is not the only reason to save Ballara. It has a huge significance to the Deacon family, to Alfred Deacon. It's shaped him, his family, Patty, his wife, and their daughters. And I can't wait to delve into that and talk about the absolute urgency of this issue at the moment to protect it and the heritage that it signifies. So I welcome onto the program Judith Bresch. Hi there, Judith. Hello. And hello and welcome to Tom Harley. Hi there. It's great to have you both together to talk about this 
subject and you're both offering such excellent expertise and opinions and views and different perspectives but the thing that you both have in common is that you both stayed at Ballara and you both have a connection to Ballara. I know that Judith you wrote in your introduction to your biography that you spent some weeks at Ballara reading through Alfred Deacon's letters, getting a sense for the place and Tom no doubt being one of the inheritors of Ballara you no doubt have quite a personal connection to it as well. Tom, would you mind describing for us how you see and have experienced Ballara as a descendant of uh, Alfred Deakin being one of his great grandsons? How have you experienced it over your lifetime? Well, some of my earliest memories of, of Ballara was at the, the family holiday house for all of us. And I used to go with, there with my grandmother, <clears throat> Vera, who was the Deacon's youngest daughter. And she inherited Ballara from her parents after they both died. And we would always have a family Christmas there. My mother is the youngest. So my, my grandparents had four daughters. Uh, and this has led to uh, the house now being owned by seven different parties. And unfortunately, time has moved on and, and some of them wish to sell it. But let me come, come back to what Ballara is. It's a kind of rambling but rather modest weatherboard house with a veranda around it. When it was first built, you could see across Port Phillips' heads from the front veranda. You can't now because the trees have grown up and, and the houses around it have grown up, but you can certainly see it from the, the master bedroom, which was the deacon's bedroom, and from a tower we added to the top. It was a house that was designed by Patty Deacon after their visit to California in the 1870s. And Judy will correct me when I get the dates wrong. Um, but the, um, and she liked the architecture of bringing nature into the house. So the house was designed really to sit among a native garden and to, to enjoy that garden and make that very much part of the kind of ensemble. Unlike um, most of their contemporaries, they wanted a bush garden that they weren't after a, a, a European garden. And they bought what were kind of scrub blocks in, in 1904, I think, but having had many holidays in, in rental houses at Point Lonsdale before then, they wanted to go there because it was not fashionable. It was quiet. It was not Port Sea or Sorrento. And it was one of really three or four houses that, that were on the on this point. They loved the sea, they liked um, the outdoors, uh, they liked um, the native flora, and I'm sure we'll come back to that, but mm. that, that, that's absolutely critical to the place. The house is filled with, with all sorts of family relics. I mean, uh, Deacon's desk that he had as a, a barrister in, in his barrister's chambers is in the front room, and it's filled with family photos. Um, families are very important to them as it is to us. Lots of books. The Deacons were voracious readers. And I think one of the things that they relaxed doing was reading out loud around the fireplace. And most of that is still there or still readily imaginable in the surroundings. Well, I've seen some photographs that you've been posting up on the, the Save Ballara Facebook page. So there's some great little insights. And it is a beautiful little living room at the front there. It's quite nice to see that it opens out through the windows you can kind of see the veranda from out in the, that living room area. In the original furnishings, there, were, uh, there are still two chests there that sat beneath those windows, and you'd sit there and you'd watch the ships going through the heads, mm. uh, uh, and which must have been quite something. 
I can't really imagine that now. (laughs) It's just so much in front of it. And Judith, I recall from your book that you say that the deacons actually rented before they built Ballara. Um, They were in Cheshunt Street, Point Lonsdale, in this little double-fronted cottage, Victorian cottage. And when Dad and I were driving around, we were trying to see if it was still there. And I don't know, I was thinking it might have been the white one on the left, just around the corner. I think I did find it. Um, and that uh, Tom would probably know if it's still there. It's still there. Is it? Yes, that's what I thought. That's quite U- small. It's it quite small. It's it's called Utopia, and it's about um, four doors down from Glenose Road towards the front beach. On is the, that the larger one then? The larger one is Seacroft, which was um, it was a, quite a similar era. Yeah. Is it next to Seacroft? The opposite Seacroft. Opposite. Okay. There you down. go. That solves my mystery now. (laughs) Well, isn't it great that that's still there too? It's so rare at the moment in Point Lonsdale. I'm seeing so many new dwellings and that does make this issue quite real because there's a potential for it if it gets sold and and not protected for it to be subdivided and developed on. I'll come to the problem. When my grandmother died, it was inherited by her four daughters. All of them had lots of children, which is a great nuisance. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, all of my my cousins have inherited interest in it, and a lot of them uh, have moved out of the state, uh, have you know dif- different circumstances and so on. And uh, everyone loves it. Everyone wants it kept together and, and protected. But I, I respect the, their wishes to sell. So my brother and I have uh, brothers and I have said that we will in, uh, and this we've done with the agreement of our mother, who's the last surviving grandchild of the deacons, that we will give our interests, my brother and I, to a trust if that trust undertakes to protect the place and we can raise sufficient money through that trust to buy the others out that wish to quit. And that means raising $5 million. Um, The the component that we give is on on the valuation of the property worth $1.4 million. So I'm unembarrassed about trying to raise money, given that we're prepared to to, to contribute to it. Mm. Um, and, I, I, and I hope it's a measure of the passion we feel for the place. And so of the five million that we're seeking to raise, we're seeking to get two and a half million from philanthropists uh, and the community. And the other two and a half million, we're asking the Commonwealth to match. And the Commonwealth has protected and contributed to seven other prime ministerial houses, which are to varying degrees around the country. So there's a long precedent of that. And the the mechanism the Commonwealth has used is to give money to a university to take up their interest and and to manage the trust. Um, We've raised um, about a million dollars so far, and uh, the local community has been absolutely terrific. Some of the people who live around have come and, and been very generous, as have, have some families and friends. But we've got a long way to go. We've got to get at least another one and a half million. Yeah. And I know that there is a, a VCAT hearing that's looming on March the 1st. How does that factor into this process? The cousins wishing to sell the petition VCAT to order an auction, uh, which brings the matter to a head. It, it, um, and on the 1st of March, VCAT will work out when and if it orders an auction. And I hope to be able to present a case that we're, we're getting there 
and mm. be to save it, um, perhaps to buy some more time. Or if all things come uh, come together, we, we may have the money, but I, I don't think I'll ha have it by the 1st of March. What's really good is that the Commonwealth has sought a formal application for the funds from Deakin University, and Deakin University has obliged and, and has put in a letter supporting our proposal and offering yeah. to play their role in it. And I know that people listening will think, gosh, well, surely this is a heritage-protected property. And I know that in your descriptions of Ballara on the Save Ballara website that there has been an application to heritage list it and to send it to the Australian Heritage Council for assessment for listing. But the request to make it an emergency listing through the Environment Minister Tanya Plibersek was rejected because they deemed that it wasn't urgent, there wasn't an imminent threat to it needing protection so quickly and that it already has some level of protection through state heritage recognition and local planning overlays. Can you tell us what it's true current heritage status is and what the degree of protection they provide, if any, in terms of if it ever was sold? There are two aspects to this. First one is state heritage laws and the local um, planning regulations put a heritage overlay over it. However, that is all contestable in through VCAT. And there are many many instances where those overlays have been overturned by somebody wanting to carve off a block here or do something there. And we have an opinion from one of the most eminent cases on heritage matters, Simon Molesworth, who says that, that these protections are not adequate. A well-heeled developer could take what is a very valuable piece of land and turn it into several more pieces of land. The second aspect I was going to mention, mm. if there's an auction, it uh, it will end the ownership of the property by the family and we will disperse all the, the books and furniture and chattels and so on that are in there. So that the, the, the ensemble, the, the collection of, of all these things will be, will be gone forever. Whereas at the moment, if we can fund this, we can keep it all together and keep it in perpetuity. Yeah, there's so many reasons to look after it and preserve it. Now, Judith, as I said, you've been to Ballara and you've also clearly got a deep, deep knowledge of Alfred Deakin and the Deakin family. What I wanted to understand from you in particular is the significance of not just Alfred Deakin, but also Patty Deakin and their significance to Australian history. Because Alfred Deakin was not just Prime Minister once, he was uh, Prime Minister in three different terms, right at the founding of Australia in terms of its after federation. And he strikes me, and from our last conversation in this book, as someone who's not the typical politician, someone who has a great depth of intellect, of soul, and you know, he has a lot of layers to him. So could you give us, uh, I guess, a little bit of insight into Alfred Deakin, the man, not just the politician, I guess, Patty Deakin. And she often, I think, maybe gets a little bit pushed to the side because he is such a, a huge figure. But could you share with us a bit of Patty Deakin too? Okay, well, I think it's important to realise that Deakin's actually a leading Victorian colonial politician of the 1880s and 1890s. He's really crucial in the movement towards federation. When he's in the Victorian Parliament, he's instrumental in the establishment of Mildura. He has two decades of colonial political prominence. And then, as you said, in the first decade of the Commonwealth, he's Prime Minister three times. And I think 
it's important to realise in this fairly, um, now that we have a rather polarised party system where we think Liberal versus Labor, when Deakin was a politician, these lines were not as sharp. The Labor Party didn't exist really for the first two decades of his political life. He was very sympathetic to trade unions. He was very sympathetic to social democracy, to the state taking a big role in ensuring the welfare of, of people. And in the first decade when he's prime minister, he cooperates with Labor for a number of years, which are really crucial in establishing foundations or policies. So I think, you know, given that we've got a Labor government at the moment at, at a federal level, it's important for both Labor and Liberal Party to see that he's part of the heritage of both of our mainstream political parties. The other thing that I think, I mean, like, you know, there's wonderful buildings and bits of land all over the place. So it seems to me that the key for me, I mean, and they're really important arguments at a heritage level, but in terms of understanding a really significant person in our political history, Ballara enables people now to get insight, I think, into really, I would say, our most significant prime minister certainly before the Second World War, so the first 50 years of the Commonwealth. Tom mentioned, you know, the books like Ballara was, and before that point Lonsdale, when their holidays, he would go down there and he would read, uh, he would think, he would walk on the beach, he would swim naked in the moonlight. You know, you get a sense of the importance of nature to him, but also that this is a man with a very rich inner life and who makes an effort to find a space. Ballara is a space in which he's able to cultivate that inner life in a way when he's up in Melbourne and he's in the hurly-burly of parliament and state dinners and all of that, it's much harder for him. He was also a very devoted family man. He and Patty met when they were both members of the Victorian Spiritualists Association. Patty's father was a leading spiritualist. They had a a strong marriage which produced the three daughters that Tom mentioned. Um, and it was a retreat too for, for their marriage. Like Ballara, you know, we've heard that Patty was the one who, who designed it, who she had a strong aesthetic sense. She was a very gracious and beautiful woman. Uh, she was a good painter. Um, she painted a lot of the orchids that, that, that grew in the uncleared land. So it also gives you, I think, some insight into the dynamics of their marriage and of the of the importance of family for them. So, I mean, I've visited the house in Bordertown that supposedly, well, I think where Bob Hawke was born, but he's only there, you know, when he's a toddler. It gives you almost no insight, I think, into Hawke as a man. I mean, it's got some posters and information boards and things, but it's just a sort of contingent connection. Whereas I think Ballara does, I felt, sitting on the veranda, reading through particularly diary entries that Deacon wrote there after he lost the election in 1910. I'd read them for a few hours in the morning and then I'd go and have a swim in the very same water that he swam in. The house still has a, a sense of the turn of the century. And I think the other thing, Vera and Tommy White, who inherit the house, are also significant um, figures in, in Australian political history. Vera was very active in the Red Cross and 
Tommy White was um, a prisoner of war in the First World War. They met as young people at the end of the war um, in London. You know, they had a whirlwind courtship. Vera continues working for the Red Cross and, and Tommy goes in, becomes a nationalist and then United Australia Party. The, uh, he becomes a, a politician and he's in Menzies' first government in, and, and he's a, a minister in the, in the um, 1930s federal government. So there's that, that's a sort of an, an added reason, I think. But I would just add to what Tom said about the collection. I mean, the house, particularly the front room, is sort of pre-modern. You know, you mm. you can sit there in the, you know, winter's evening and they have, I think it's probably Banksy, I'm not quite sure what the wood is that gets burnt, but it's got this wonderful scent. Tea tree, we call it's it. It's tea tree, isn't it? Yes. And, you know, the lamps are low and it enables you, I think, to get some sense of what the lived world of Patty and Alfred was in the early decades of the 20th century. And I think if the family has other pieces of furniture and memorabilia at things in other of their houses, and so it could become a sort of a collection point because Australians have not been very good, I don't think, at celebrating their history. And none of the other houses of any of, the, there are no houses of any of the Federation politicians, the leading people like Barton or Forrest, any of those leading figures from the early Commonwealth. No houses exist. This is the last chance. My mother inherited Vera's papers and Vera inherited Patty's papers. And Patty's papers were Alfred's and Patty's papers, but of their private existence. So Judy knows, having read far, far more than any member of the family has ever attempted of the <laughs> correspondence, they used to write to each other continually in the most devoted terms. Um, and during COVID, I managed to catalogue several thousand pieces of correspondence. And it's a virtue and a bit of a hindrance. No member of the family seems to have ever thrown anything out. Uh, <laughs> and so um, I managed to make some order of it. And if, if we can get this thing to work, we would commit those papers to being linked with the property, possibly not in the house because uh, they'd be vulnerable there, but in, in an appropriate thing. And, it, and it's an extraordinary record mm. of both the Deacons and also uh, Tom and Vera White's lives. Absolutely. There's so many heritage respects. I think that's a virtue in my opinion, but people might call me a hoarder if they looked at my book collection. <laughs> I wanted to also remark on another aspect because if anyone's been there, you drive around one corner and you can see a war memorial, which Judith wrote that Patty actually set that up on the corner. And then you see Ballara in the driveway. And if you go further down, there's also another adjoining property called Arilpa, which has a very distinct kind of echo architecturally to Ballara. And I wanted to get a sense of the inspiration. Obviously, there's a clear link between the two properties, but how do they interrelate or interconnect, you know, not just architecturally, but within the family? All the land was bought by Alfred and Patty, and, uh, and, and fairly soon after that, all of that land was bought, Alfred sold a parcel of it to Herbert Brooks, his son-in-law, married to Ivy, his eldest daughter. And they built a Rilpa, which I think takes Ballara and actually Ballara is the prototype and perfects it. It's, mm. it's a much better version of Ballara. 
So the two houses, especially with when Alfred and Patty were there, the, the photos of, of Herbert and uh, with his horse wandering through Ballara and, and you know, right through my lifetime, it's now owned by one of my second cousins. We've walked through the bush and they've been almost the same. But a Ballara and Arilpa have had different land management propositions. So Arilpa was owned by my, my mother's first cousin, Alfred Brooks. And Alfred was a very interesting man who was the first director general of ASIS. And he died uh, a good 10 years ago. But he left um, the lands ma management to the Trust for Nature, who have restored it to, um, to how it looked basically when the deacons bought the land. And they've removed the tea tree because tea tree would come and go. And in pre-settlement times, it would be burnt uh, by the Wadharong people who were the traditional owners of the area every five or 10 years. And so it would, would always be scrubbed. It's not so popular if you try and burn the tea tree now. And we've kept the tea tree around Ballara, but Arilka sits really in a sea of, uh, of grass trees with some melaleucas or mooners. Mm. The grasslands around it is quite spectacular. But then when you look out, it, it is, as you say, it's kind of this epic version of Ballara. It has, mm. it's just taken it and built it quite literally a bit higher and a bit wider. And yeah, it's so striking. Well, Brooks, Brooks had private wealth. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, I think one of the things that Ballara communicates about about Deacon and Paddy is a, is a degree of modesty. Mm. You know, like Brooks, Herbert Brooks was seriously wealthy in a way that Alfred Deacon never was. You know, he had, he had a solid middle class income, obviously, as a prime minister and, you know, a bit more than solid, but he wasn't a wealthy businessman in the way that, that Herbert Brooks was. And I think the other thing probably to add is that on the Ballerine Peninsula, very little indigenous vegetation remains. This is at that level of sort of natural heritage, a real opportunity. Well, I just walked through the garden quite literally this afternoon and the smell, the scent that you're enveloped in is all of that native smells as well as the pines out the front, but there's just this beautiful smell of grasslands and gum trees and the sounds of the trees whistling in the wind and the birds. It's just kind of a huge sensory experience. And, you know, what you were saying, Judith, about it being a space of recovery. I know that there were times where he and Patty needed to recover their health and to reinvigorate themselves. And Ballara was that place for them. But there's also a, another aspect which you mentioned about Alfred Deakin's pre-Prime Ministerial life when he's engaged in politics but also in journalism and he's writing columns for a London newspaper and apparently was writing them from Ballara a lot and, you know, using that as a base, a place to think and write. Can you tell us a little bit about that and, you know, Tom, if you have any things to add as well in, in that regard about his intellectual life at Ballara? People didn't have cars then. So they spend time at Ballara a good chunk of the summer, probably at Easter, I'm not sure, and when Parliament's not sitting. But they go down for long periods of time. They would get the steamer and then be met by some sort of horse-drawn carriage. Um, on He starts writing anonymous letters for a London daily newspaper. In 1900, he goes to London in order to get the constitution through the British Parliament. You know, he and Barton uh, and Kingston go as the sort of shepherds of it. And he's approached 
by the Morning Post and offered this gig, really, you know, to write a, a weekly or fortnightly letter about affairs in Australia, the, the politics of the, of the new Commonwealth. Now, at that stage, he's not Prime Minister. You know, in a way, things are in abeyance. He's going to stand. So he takes it on. I think it was, it was reasonably well paid uh, and it's anonymous. But what's really unusual about him is that he he keeps writing this all the time through his prime ministership. And it's where I got the title, The Enigmatic Mr Deacon from, was from one of these letters that he wrote, where at the point in 1909, when there was two non-Labor parties versus a very successful Labor Party, and the two non-Labor parties, which we could call Conservative and a Liberal Party, had been opponents, but they feel that they have to come together to make a unified non-Labor Party. Now he writes then, you know, he says, things are afoot, but Mr. Deacon maintains his enigmatic silence or nobody knows what the enigmatic Mr. Deacon is thinking. That is, he's, he writes, he pretends to be uh, somebody writing from Sydney, has this persona of being a free trader, which Deacon wasn't. So it's a pretty extraordinary feat, really. And, and it shows something about I think his sort of sense of detachment from the theatre of politics. I mean, he plays politics hard. You know, he's a passionate politician. He's a very intelligent man. But he also retains a little distance, a sense of his own intense spiritual life, but his own intellectual life. He'd intended, I think, to use these letters to write a history of the early Commonwealth. Sadly, he got probably something similar to early onset Alzheimer's when he was in his late 50s or maybe earlier than that. And so he never was able to make use of those letters in the way he'd intended. Add to that, Judy, it got this kind of, um, he struggled to find out what his purpose in life is, uh, and you know, the whole meaning of life, existential challenges. And he writes these prayers and yes. these reviews of all the books and poetry he's reading and looking for some inner meaning. Uh, it's a, another aspect of his enigmatic nature because virtually none of this is apparent to anyone, including the family. And he'd spend hours at night writing these journals and um, uh, and that's that's why I, the inner life is very important and why this house is is more than just a holiday house. It's, That's right. It's got. It's actually at the crux of who he, and what he is. He kept a prayer diary from very early in his political career. He doesn't write in it every night, but at times of crisis he does. And it's like he thinks with his pen, you know, mm. and he write he writes it out. And so that's why I think one needs to stress that this house gives you real insight into the into this man who was, I think, our most significant prime minister in the first half of the 20th century, in a way that some other houses, like one of the comments that was made early on was, well, it's a holiday house, you know, why would we save somebody's holiday house? But it's a lot more than that. You know, it's a, it's a house that really does give you some real insight, I think, into the, the very complex man that Alfred Deacon was. Much more complex, I think, than most politicians are. It comes across very strongly. 
to pick up on that, you know, we're talking about the intellectual life, but also his uniqueness as a politician. And there are photographs of him standing in those beautiful native grasslands and other vegetation uh, with Joseph Cook. So there were also moments in his political life that somewhat occasionally intersected. And I wanted to, I guess, understand that as well. Were there moments that were political in nature that were significant? Well, that, that photo is when Cook is visiting him in 1909. Cook is the leader from New South Wales of, by that stage, I think it's called the Anti-Socialist Party. It was George Reed's party, the party of the free traders that was based in Sydney. Deacon coming out of, like in the late 19th century, Victoria is for protection, New South Wales is for free trade. And this was a big barrier in the way of federation. But Henry Parks effectively enabled federation to go ahead by kicking the decision about trade policy down the road and said, let's leave that to the, the early Commonwealth, right? So that when we have the first federal elections in 1902, there are three parties. There's the, Labor, the new Labor Party, there's George Reed's led, let's call it the Free Trade Party, and there's Deacon's protectionists. And they, they, they're sort of fairly evenly balanced. But what happens is that over that decade, Labor's support really increases so that in 1910, Labor actually wins majority government. And so in 1909, Cook is visiting Deacon at Ballara in order to basically do the deal that will bring the Victorian protectionists and the Cook-led free traders into the one party, and it becomes the Commonwealth Liberal Party. So it's, if you like, our first coordinated unified non-Labour party. It was described that politics up to then was like trying to play cricket with three 11s. Um, it was a, a bit difficult. Uh, and, hmm. uh, and the kind of, one of the reasons for the, for the, for the um, fusion, as it, as it was called, was that Labour decided to contest every seat. And so in some ways, Ballara's Garden has a, a, a claim to a role in the birth of two-party politics, which I think has a mixed legacy. But uh, mm. it, it's certainly something that happened there. I'd just like to go back to that point that Judy made earlier, that what Deacon achieved in probably the most productive period of his prime ministership, which was 1905 to 8, was done with Labour as, as the minority party supporting the government. So, and Labour claims um, many of the achievements of that period, as does the current Liberal Party. Uh, so it's, mm. it, it's not uh, the two-party system has kind of obliterated a lot of that. Uh, and... I'm really pleased. I mean, some of the most enthusiastic supporters of our campaign have been Steve Brax, who had rented Ballara uh, when when we let it out years ago, and Barry Jones, um, who are deeply immersed in it, and uh, John Faulkner, who's the chairman of, of the Whitlam House. And they all see this project as being beyond two-party politics. And all of us lament, in a, in a way, how casual or uh, reckless we have been with our history. This would be some way of rectifying that. Yes, I was reading in um, the supports for the heritage listing. Obviously, there were other politicians in support of that as well, like Julie Bishop and mm. Malcolm Turnbull. And mm. I know that they were saying that during his second term as prime minister, a couple of his achievements were establishing the Bureau of Census and Statistics and the Bureau of Meteorology. 
the Commonwealth, you know, gets formed in 1901, and the par and the Parliament. There's an election, and this Parliament sits. There's no institutions. They all have to be built, and so mm -hmm. he, it, things are setting up the quarantine authority, and you know, he's really there, and and he's a very he's extremely hardworking, and. I've been talking about this sort of spiritual, intellectual side. He's also actually quite a practical man, too. You know, um, so a lot got done. Mm. One thing where Bellara is relevant is, I mean, he's very interested in naval power. I mean, the, the naval power. You know, the, the air force. There's no air power in those days, um, uh, and the navy was where it was all at. Uh, and he 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 makes the, the the major steps to set up the Australian Navy, but to help build the case for the Australian Navy, and also to to hedge our bets against the British not protecting us, he writes behind the back of the British government, who was in charge of the British government was in charge of our international relations. Then he wrote to Teddy Roosevelt, inviting him to send the Great White Fleet, which was the this flotilla of American naval ships that were all painted white, and he got Roosevelt to send them to Australia, and he we think he was at Ballara when they sailed through the heads, and then later went up to the to the city to greet them, and it was a massive piece of public diplomacy that is I think the, at the core of the uh, establishing an Australian U.S. Uh, military and, and strategic relationship, but. Churchill was incandescent with rage that the British government, had, uh, and he was, I think, colonial secretary or something then, um, or, or may have been first sea lord, uh, that that these impertinent Australians had gone around the back of them. Uh, mm. There's something, too, about Ballara being at the heads there. Deacon was about thinking about Australia's position in the world and in, and in particularly in the Pacific. Yeah. And this passage of the ships in and out, I mean, he wasn't parochial in that sense. And I think that that's also part of what Ballara can communicate to people today. Yeah. And my grandmother, uh, uh, Judy mentioned, was working with the Red Cross in the First War in London, and the, and her parents came to visit her. Her father was seeking medical treatment at the time. And anyway, they went down and visited Joseph Conrad, the writer, uh, in his house in, in southern England. And uh, my grandmother told me the story about what they had this fascinating day talking about ships because Conrad had been a sailor, I mean, the ship's captain, I think, and he had been in and out of Port Phillip many times and all through the Pacific. And um, the deacons talked about it all the time. Then Conrad asked my grandmother if she'd like a copy of one of his books, and if so, which one, to which she said, youth. And, mm -hmm. um, and I think my cousin has as the book inscribed by Conrad to her. Wow. As so many different strands of history converging in this family, but also this property. I wanted to also touch on the story of the garden, but also Patty and some of her achievements, which is featured in the Save Ballara handbook on the website. I love that it says architect and second owner um, mm. because I was talking to my family saying, you know, thinking about architecture and architects, there weren't many women designing houses, at least in a formal sense. Clearly, Patty had a very aesthetic talent and her watercolours are quite stunning and beautiful. Um, she obviously had great taste architecturally because I was enamoured with Ballara when I saw it. The contrast of the, you know, dark wood with the white facade, it draws you in. 
uh, it is something I think that's worth protecting, even just architecturally, let alone all the rest. So could you, Tom, describe what makes Ballara special, the house, but also especially the gardens? Because I know you've posted up some great pictures of some of the significance of the gardens. Its whole concept was to bring the the garden into the house uh, and and to celebrate the native bushland. And they went to enormous pains. Uh, It was always a battle, kind of maintaining it and and making sure that it wasn't a fire risk. But she (laughs) would identify um, a, a lot of rare and native native orchids that would that tend to bloom around September or October. And she painted over 32 watercolours of these, which we've got, which we'd like to put in Ballara, as well as the seascapes. And she was very interested in the botany of them. She also had good relations with a lot of artists. Uh, Tom Roberts painted their portraits, the big picture of the opening of the first federal parliament in the exhibition building, but they knew him and they corresponded with him and quite a few of, of their contemporaries, Fred McCubbin. And in the dining room at Ballara is, is a reproduction of McCubbin's triptych of the pioneers, which is in the National Gallery in Victoria, which was, again, about the celebration of the native bushland, but also a warning about uh, the development of it, if you know that painting. And Deacon, uh, the two of them had a kind of very active life engaging with those artists, writers in particular. And one of Deacon's early institutional achievements was to establish the Commonwealth Literary Fund, which uh, you know, ultimately has morphed into some part of the Australia Council because he wanted to support struggling writers. And the two of them did. They, would, uh, they weren't lavish hosts. You were more likely to find an artist or a poet at the house than a politician. Mm-mm. I love that. <laughs> well, it's even more striking that she was also president of the Lyceum Club, which has a very strong focus on the arts as well. So there are many firsts for Patty Deacon as well as Alfred Deacon. And she had a you- very strong kind of social conscience and, and, and was very demanding of people who had public roles and had a duty of care to people, particularly children. And she would occasionally turn up uh, inquiries into the running of state institutions for the protection of children and demand answers. She was very purposeful. I've got a photo here that Lord Kitchener gave her because she declined to go to a, a, a kind of special reception for him because she was running the Royal District Nursing Society thing. And she wasn't there as a kind of philanthropist, socialite person. She was there to to drive outcomes and, and get purpose. And I think Judy knows more about this than I do. She and my grandmother were quite subversive. You wouldn't describe them as feminists, but you would describe them as people who got things done by... Well, they're, yeah, they're very practical, competent women and confident in their, in their competence because during the, sec- the, sorry, the First World War, Patty ran the Anzac Buffet, which was outside of, you know, where the... I can't remember what it's called now, but basically the the military buildings that are still there in St Kilda Road. So where men were coming to recruit or where, where they were being disbanded or whatever, but there was a lot of soldiers around and it was a buffet where they would get some food, a cup of tea and somebody to talk to them because a lot of them had, you know, difficulties, you know, if they were coming back on leave or whatever. And she ran it, you know, mm. and this was about, making cups of tea and running and having huge urns and lots of sandwiches and 
So and I think that's welfare really... aspects too, because I think that, at, that you know that some of these young boys who it was their first visit to Melbourne in the enlistment period, and it started off at a few hundred, but I was reading something earlier today where that they were dealing with a thousand people a day by the uh, mm. at peak. And Alfred, by this stage, was also kind of, he was retired and he'd come and mop the floors and serve the tea as well. Uh, he writes, I think you, you you report this, Judy, how he enjoyed being the supportive figure. Mm. Yes. Yes, they were a devoted couple. Sounds like they were very supportive of each other because there was another section in your book where Patty was saying he gave a four and a half hour speech, I think, in Victorian Parliament. And she was remarking on how it, it wasn't about party politics and it wasn't about policies, but it was about his vision and his values. And it was more about something bigger than politicking a lot of his oratory. Yeah, well, I think one of the things about Deacon was that he, again, had a focus on achievements mm. so it, it wasn't just about the numbers obviously you have to have the numbers in order to achieve the policy outcomes but he always had his focus on the policy outcomes he was trying to achieve and so that's one of the reasons he was always prepared to compromise having done the work on Deakin and on that and on that early period of the Commonwealth I think minority governments have got a lot of potential mm. because they force the major players to compromise and I think often you get better outcomes when they're the result of compromise. Yeah. I think you also need to have some kind of convening influences which Deacon had the capacity to do. A lot of intelligence and, and some charm persuasive. Yes, I, yes I'd agree. Very hard to switch from a two-party system to that system. That requires mm. it part of your brain. Uh, I was going to say there are clearly things that you're doing, Tom, that yep. you've already told us about that we won't have any sway over. But as we know, public pressure, public opinion and momentum is really important, which is the point of this interview. So there is this change.org petition. At the moment, there's 5,918 signatures. The, the current goal is 7,500, but I'm sure more would be welcome if, <laughs> if more want to sign the petition. Thank you, Amy. That's absolutely right. I mean, it is one way of demonstrating to the government that this is something that people would like, because governments react. They like to see people. They like to do things people want them to do. That uh, if anyone is moved by what we've been saying, that they they go online to change.org and and find the Ballara petition. Is there a public fundraising appeal as well, Tom, or is that being... What I'm doing is that I've approached a number of people, but I don't really want to go around shaking the tin. But if anyone okay. is moved to there, welcome to approach us through the website. And what I'm doing is, because I'm mindful, this is all contingent. If I don't get yes. the money, then it doesn't happen. And so I've been taking pledges from people, and some of them have been quite substantial, and I've said that, that this pledge is contingent on us getting the money from the Commonwealth and and raising the 2.5 million that goes along with my brother and I are giving. So if people want to make mon uh, money available on that basis, we'd be delighted to accept it. And the, and the website does that. Also have a look at the, um, the Facebook page because we're going to continue to post uh, things that may interest people on it. But... Right to um, Libby Coker, who's the member mm. for Langamite, or Richard Miles, who's the member for Correo. And it was Richard who suggested to me that I approach Deakin University. And he is the deputy PM at the moment, isn't he? So he has some sway, surely. Yep. And I 
uh, met with the, the council in Queenscliff, who are going to be very supportive, and uh, they are considering providing some funds as well. So the, mm. in, this is a ground-up thing as well as from ex-prime ministers and so on. Is Sarah Henderson being helpful? I haven't approached her yet. I will. And I was going to say, is it also worth contacting Tanya Plibersek's office and saying, we support this? I should add to what you said before. She rejected the emergency listing on the advice of her department that it wasn't under imminent threat. Now, you could argue it wasn't a year ago, um, Mm. but that situation changes. And when facts change, you should change your position. But she overruled some advice and has asked the Heritage Council to assess it for listing. But that is a a year-long process. Um, So it could come and go before Mm. that that is concluded. So emergency listing, the Commonwealth has the powers to stop a subdivision. But an auction, they can't stop an auction, and and an auction will will, Mm. uh, result in the dispersal of all the paintings and books and, and furniture. Yeah. And you would also say that if anyone has a Labor MP, a a government MP, to write to their MP, because it will still get back to, you know, the powers that be up the top. Yep. Uh, Write to Liberals and the Greens, Mm. anyone, because it's it is something that um, it should should I hope resonate with a lot of the the community. Mm. The importance of Australia understanding who we all are. I think this is a, a, a story that needs to be illustrated. And I think we're too casual with our past. Beauty's uh, uh, crusade as much as mine, I think, because I think a, a country that doesn't understand where it came from doesn't know where it's going to find it even more difficult to know where it's going. Indeed. And I think what the point of your generosity will be if this goes through is that the community will be able to engage with its history at Ballara and it will be something for the public. Absolutely. And the grounds will be something that people can wander in and out of. Indeed. Yeah. Well, for anyone who wants to get on board, I'll put all the links to the petition, to the Save Ballara website and the Facebook. And uh, yeah, I hope that anyone who's even slightly intrigued will tell their friends as well to get this out there because we need to keep building momentum and tom you've been doing an amazing job getting out there spreading the word and you know looking for the funding setting it all up it's a huge huge task so thank you for doing it thank you for your interest and um you know it's by no means certain that we're going to get there i mean it's highly uncertain so Mm. please the more the more uh, the more we can generate a sense of urgency to government and to to potential funders, the better. So thank you. Absolutely. My pleasure. And thank you so much, Judith, because what you've done for our our understanding of Alfred Deakin and the Deakin family is unparalleled and invaluable. So thank you so much for your time putting his story into a much broader context for us. It's been so, so uh, wonderful to hear from you as well. Thank you for having me. I've just been speaking with Emeritus Professor Judith Brett, Professor of Politics at La Trobe University. She's also a political historian and biographer, as well as Tom Harley, who is the great grandson, one of a few, of Alfred Deakin, who was a Australian Prime Minister, among many other things. And uh, as you can tell, Tom is very passionate about heritage and an amateur historian himself. And we've just been talking about the Save Ballara campaign which is seeking to save 
the Ballara property and the gardens surrounding grounds in Point Lawnsdale on the Ballerine Peninsula, which was such a crucial meeting place and home for the Deacons. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.